Hey, I'm Christian Bucher, the associate pastor at LFC. I pray that this message encourages you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective to see that God is moving in your life. Enjoy the message. So we've been in the Unshakable series. If you haven't listened to the messages, go back. We've talked about Noah. We've talked about the three Hebrew boys. We've talked about Daniel and the lion's den. And today we're going to dig into the story of Esther, one of my favorite, favorite books of the Bible. It takes place, it's set about 100 years after the Babylonian exile of Israelites from their land. So remember, if you'll remember with me, Jerusalem had been set ablaze. Jerusalem had been burned down. How many of you know that Jerusalem was an important city back then? Yep. How many of you know that Jerusalem is important today? Yes, it is. Don't forget that. So it had been burned down, and Ezra had been sent from Persia to go back and rebuild the temple. And Nehemiah had led a group out of Persia, and he was rebuilding the walls. So some Jews returned to Jerusalem. Some of them went back to Jerusalem, but some of them stayed in Persia. Some of them stayed in the land where they were taken captive. And this book, Esther, is about a Jewish community in the city of Susa. Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire, all right? And there's main characters all throughout Esther, but I'm going to talk about four of them. Two are Jews, Mordecai and Esther, his cousin. And we have the king of Persia. We also have Haman, who is a Persian official. Interestingly enough, there's all kinds of happenstances in the book of Ezra, some coincidences, ironic reversals, if you will. And it forces us, it forces us to see God's purpose at work behind the scenes because you know why? God's name is not mentioned one time, not one time in the book of Esther. Isn't that an interesting fact? But let's dive in. We're starting the story, the very beginning in Esther chapter one, and the book opens with the king of Persia, and he is throwing a humdinger of a party. They are partying for 180 days. Have you ever been to a 180-day party? No, thank you. That's what I had to say. I'm like that girl on Friday nights. Please don't ask me to party on Friday nights. I'd rather cuddle up in my jammies and stay home and watch a movie and eat pizza. But they were having this great party, this opulent party. There was wealth. There was fine food. Just kind of showing off this regal kingdom that King Xerxes was in charge of. And we really had, he really had an ulterior motive. He brought all the princes, he brought all the, the military leaders from all of his provinces, provinces, say that three times fast, 127 provinces. And he was really trying to convince them that they could sustain a military campaign against Greece because King Xerxes was this close. He was this close of making himself the supreme ruler of the world of that day. So he's trying to prove that he could afford a war. And so they partied for six months. And then after 180 days of partying, he caps it off with a seven-day rager. And the rager was in his 
private gardens at the palace. It was enclosed. Uh, Historians tell us that there was a personal petting zoo there. So how many of you would like to have a zoo in your backyard? Would you like that? So like HGTV would say it was the ultimate outdoor dining experience. And they served a lot of wine. So in the 180 days, it was great. But in the seven-day rager, the Bible tells us that not one of the goblets were the same. Mind you, not one of the gold goblets were the same. They were gold. They were handcrafted. They were beautiful. So you can just imagine the expense and the extravagance. There was no red solo cups. And Xerxes, he had a rule, and he said, you can drink as much as you want. There were no restrictions. There were no breathalyzers, no DWIs, no DUIs, no designated drivers. Y'all just go for it and have a roaring good time. So it's no surprise that at the last day of the banquet, the Bible says that King Xerxes was high in spirits. Hello. He was high on wine, and he calls for his wife, Vashti, the queen of Persia, to come and show off. She was beautiful. The crown was magnificent, and he wanted to show off his wife, and girl said, no. She said, I'm not doing it. I don't want to come in to your seven-day rager. It's disgusting. I'm not going to present myself in such a way. So she refuses, and he is ticked off. He's mad, he's angry, and he's embarrassed. And so he goes to his buddies because, you know, in marriage, that's what you do when you have a little tiff. You go to your friends and you go to your buddies and you tell them all about your disagreement. And he says to his crew, I mean, I've got a problem. What am I going to do with Vashti? And they're like, dude, this is not only your problem. This is now our problem. Because if people hear that the queen disobeyed the king, then our wives and every wife in Persia is going to disobey her husband as well. So he says, they say, let's, let's declare that Vashti, your queen, can never come into your presence again. Never come into your presence again. And, and why not? Let's take a, it a step further and let's make an edict or a law to make sure that every Persian wife must know that she has to obey her husband. Does that sound like a good idea? Of course it does. I've been drinking for seven days straight. Why don't I make a huge relationship decision right now that will not only affect my personal relationship, but it will also affect everyone in the kingdom that I rule. So that's what they did. Why not? Let's do it. And it became a law of the Medes and the Persians. And these edicts, These laws that they made could not be altered. Remember that. So Xerxes, he got his way. He convinced all of his military leaders to uh, go to war, and they did. They went to war against Greece, and the Persians got pummeled. (laughs) They were soundly defeated. And so that kind of bummed out King Xerxes. He was a little melancholy. He was defeated, and he was moping around. He was moping around the palace, and... Guess who he missed? Vashti. He missed her, but she'd been banned, and there's no turning back. And so his friends, his good buddies, they say, hey, we've got an idea. This is great. Let's have a beauty pageant. 
Let's have a beauty pageant. And let's determine then who will be the next queen of Persia. This is great. I don't know. It sounds like a really bad soap opera to me. But this is what's happening. And this is when we meet Mordecai and Esther. Now, Esther's parents had both died. And so Mordecai, her cousin, had adopted her. And as she goes into this beauty pageant, Mordecai says to her, whatever you do, do not let them know that you are a Jew. And so Esther goes, and guess what? She wins the golden ticket. She's going to Hollywood week. I mean, it is on. It is on. Actually, it's not week. It was a year, a year, because Esther 2.12, we're going to jump in here in Esther 2 as we look at the qualities of the unshakable today. This is what it says. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. So this oil of myrrh I want to talk to you about for a minute. It's an ingredient that we often use in anointing oil. So at LFC, we use anointing oil. At LFC, we have a back-to-school anointing service. And if you need prayer and you come up at the end of service and, and you're sick or you need something special, we'll anoint you with oil. It's biblical. James 5.14, is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, this anointing oil, it's not magical, but it is a symbol. And it represents being set apart, empowered, and protected. Now, oftentimes, when we have like a powerful service or worship, you know, we kind of Sense that extra measure of God's presence in the place, we'll say something like, man, I sense the anointing today. Yeah? You've said it. You've heard I sense the anointing today. And, and, and there's a difference. You know it. I know it. In a regular church service and an anointed church service. We sense it. We feel it. A couple months back, we had a water baptism service. And man, I'll tell you, there was an, an empowerment. There was a setting apart during that service. If you were here, especially the second service, in addition to the candidates who had signed up to be water baptized, we had 38 spontaneous water baptisms. Yeah. Go ahead. Give God the glory. Give God the glory. You see, there was an anointing on that service. That service was set apart for 38 people to make a public declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ. The anointing was on that service. And Esther had an anointing on her life. She had been set apart. She had been empowered. She had been perfumed with the fragrance of the Holy Spirit. And you know what perfume does, don't you? You know what it does? makes you smell good. Perfume makes you smell good and it draws people to you. And Esther, the Bible says that Esther literally found favor with everyone. How would you like that? Everybody liked Esther. Everybody loved Esther. The first characteristic of the unshakable out of the book of Esther is that the unshakable smell good. The unshakable smell good. I believe the anointing 
will make the difference in your life. And I believe that the anointing isn't just for someone holding a microphone, standing behind a pulpit. The pouring out of his spirit is the anointing. The unshakable lay hold of the anointing. Now, in order to create that perfume, that fragrance, that myrrh, it had to be crushed. You see, Esther, she just wasn't another pretty face. This young woman had been crushed. She had faced many difficulties in her life. She was an orphan. That in and of itself, both parents had died when she was just young. Such great loss she suffered. And then she was whisked away from her home and everything she knew. And she was taken to a pagan king's palace. Oh, we like to fairy tale, fairy tale lies. You like that? We like to Disney lies. We like to make all of this sound so wonderful and glamorous and glorious. But here is a young Jewish girl who is taken into the, the, the palace of a pagan king. And he was at least twice, perhaps three times her age. You don't think that she is suffering. You don't think that she is being crushed and pounded. And if she did not win the title of queen, do you know what happened to her? She was moved into a harem. Maybe she would be called upon by the king. Or, or maybe she wouldn't. But she would live there for the remainder of her life, never to be married, never to have children. These are difficulties for anyone, let alone a young woman. But the anointing comes out of crushing. And the anointing comes out of being broken. And the anointing comes when we're pounded and when we go through something. And some of you are here today and you're going through something. You're being pounded and crushed. Can I encourage you today to keep walking? Will you keep walking through it? Don't stop. Don't quit. Get a hold of it because God is going to take the crushing and the pounding and the pummeling, and he is going to anoint you with a sweet fragrance. Don't waste your pain. The pain of your past can become the power of your presence, and with it, there's an aroma. There's an aroma that comes with the anointing. You can smell like the rose of Sharon or the lily of the valley. There's just a sweetness. Psalm 45, 8 says it this way. Your garments do smell of myrrh and cassia and the ivory palaces, and it makes us glad. The anointing on Esther's life made King Xerxes glad. He was actually somewhat obsessed with Esther. She was the most beautiful out of all the girls, and he put the crown on her head. Esther went from a Jewish orphan to the queen of Persia. Lean over to your neighbor and say, the unshakable smell good. And so do you. All right, all right. So now the plot thickens, right? So Esther's queen, and we're going a little bit further in the story. And Mordecai, her cousin, her caretaker, is pacing the gate, probably a little worried about her. And as he's there, he just so happens, 
circumstantially, he just so happens to overhear some of the, uh, the officials, these royal guards, and they're planning to assassinate the king. That is bad news. But Mordecai goes to Esther, and Esther tells the king, and essentially the king's life is saved, and it's written down in the chronicles. It's written down in the, the king's diary. It's a part of history now. Then we've got this guy, Haman, and he is a Persian official, but he's not really a Persian. He is an Agagite. Now, an Agagite was a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. It's important for you to know this because the Canaanites are really the mortal enemies of Israel. So Haman, literally inborn, inbred, was a hatred of the Jews. And he's arrogant and he's prideful, but I don't know, King Xerxes, he's one of a kind. This uh, prideful, arrogant buddy of his, he exalts to a high position. And then he demands that if you see Haman in the street, why don't you go ahead and bow down to him, you know, do a little curtsy, honor this man by bowing down. And Mordecai, he sees Haman and he says, not going to do it. No to the kneeling. Not going to happen. But Haman, oh, he's just so, oh, just, just a, a fire ready, ready to spark. And it makes him so mad. And it makes him so angry because one man didn't bow to him that he goes to the king and he fusses about it. And he says, hey, king, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to enact another decree. Only this time I would like to destroy all the Jewish people. This is what I want to do. And guess what? That's what they did. That's what they did. 11 months later, on the 13th of Adar, all of the Jews will die. Bad, bad news. Of course, Haman and the king, they celebrate with another boozer, and uh, they keep going. Crazy times. But the unshakable, they might smell good. Yes? But sometimes the unshakable shake. Pinch your neighbor and say, yep, you're human. Yep, you're human. Let's look at Esther 4, <laughs> 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because nobody clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. And every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now Esther heard that Mordecai was, was doing this. He was pacing and he was wailing and he was weeping and she totally freaked out. She flipped out. I mean, the adopted father of the queen of Persia should not be behaving in this manner, walking up and down the streets, wailing, sackcloth and ashes. Are you kidding me? Where are your Gucci shoes, man? Where are your Gucci shoes? Didn't I send you to get your beard trimmed and oiled? Come on. Come on, Mordecai. Come on. So she sends clothes out to him, and she says, pull yourself together, man. <laughs> we got to look good. We got to represent but Mordecai did not accept the clothes. And Esther knew then 
that something must be wrong. You see, Esther was in a little bit of a bubble. How many of you live in a little bubble? We might live in a little bit of a bubble here in Lima, maybe. I don't know. It's a good place to be. But Esther, she wasn't on Facebook that much. And so she didn't know what was going on. And she didn't watch the news. So she sent out one of the king's eunuchs to find out exactly what was going on and why Mordecai was so troubled. And in verse 7, the Bible says that Mordecai told him everything that had happened, including the amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He gave him a copy of the edict for the annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her, go to the king's presence, beg for his mercy, and plead with him for her people. Now, Esther's response is a little shocking. Essentially, she said, oh, man, I'm I'm really um, sorry to hear that. That is too bad. Man, that stinks. I, I didn't know about that before, but here's the deal. I haven't been called into the king's presence for about 30 days. And I'm not on Facebook, Facebook very much, but I haven't had the chance to, you know, update my relationship status. But, dude, it is complicated. It is complicated. And not only that, but you know what the law is. You see, if anyone dared go into the presence of the king without being summoned, they could be put to death immediately unless the king held the scepter out to that person. So Esther's saying to the eunuch, you tell Mordecai, that might mean that I die. It would be my death. Up to this point, up to this point, Esther had been unshakable. This girl had been through it. But all of a sudden, she balks. All of a sudden, she shakes. Or maybe it wasn't all of a sudden. Maybe it wasn't. I guess after a year of bubble baths and mani-pedis and pampering, fine dining, and a luxurious lifestyle, could it be that Esther had dulled spiritually? If we're not careful, church, we will be so pampered by the world and the things of the world that we will get so comfortable and forget that there is a godly reason for us being on this earth. Oh, he says he's going to give us a life and an abundant life, but let's not be deceived. We're not here to be the biggest, the best. We are here to do a kingdom's work. We are here to put our hand to the plow and work for the cause of Christ. We can't get too comfortable and we can never forget the reason we're here of all times in history. The time to get comfortable is not now because there's still a plot. Do you understand that? There is still a plot to annihilate your children and your homes and your marriages and our nation, but you have the call of God on your life. It's upon you, LFC, and you have a date with destiny. But Esther, she forgot. She got comfortable and forgot her purpose. Verse 12 says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Pay attention. Do not think that because you are in the king's house 
you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. When you refuse to obey God's voice and you refuse to do what God has told you what to do, you need to understand that if you do not appreciate the call on your life and you do not appreciate the place that you are at or the place and the, and the things that God has given you, if you don't take advantages of those open doors, I assure you this, there will always be somebody else that God will find to do the work. You are never, I am never so important that God can't find someone else to do it. Now, that might hurt your little feelings. It might hurt my feelings sometimes. But God has a plan, a providential plan that he will see come to pass. He wants to use you. He wants you to play a part. He wants you to move in the anointing. But if you choose not to, he'll find somebody else who will. Some of you today are called to be small group leaders. There's a calling on your life. You had a sense to respond. I'm telling you, answer the call of God on your life. Don't tell God no. Don't tell him no. Be happy when he asks you to do something. John Kilpatrick says if God tells you to do something, you click your heels and you say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Esther, she made a course correction real quick. Real quick. She shook, but it was only for a minute. The third quality of the unshakable can be found in Esther 4, 15, the beginning of the verse. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews. The third quality of the unshakable is the unshakable gather. She said, gather all the Jews. I say gather for worship experience. Gather for midweek, gather for hunger and thirst, gather for a small group, gather for youth group, gather for light the night. You see, Esther had been out of the loop for about a year. She hadn't met with her people. She hadn't gathered with them. And her spirits were dulled because we need each other. We need community. We need friendships. We need to, to be shoulder to shoulder and face to face. And I think we need to take a look at the church especially in this generation. I'm afraid that something has happened in the minds of the people thinking that the church is just not as important as it was a generation ago. You say, oh, here she goes. Oh, I'm going. I'm going there. I'm going. You see, the church isn't just something you do when you feel like it. And it's convenient or it fits into your schedule. You know what? God never meant for us to look at church that way. You, some of you say, oh, LFC, good grief, Sunday morning, Sunday night. We've got Wednesday night. There's small groups. There's, there's something. You know why? Because that's what the Bible says to do. It says even more as the day approaches that we're living in these last days and Jesus is coming soon. And he says, to you all the more. You gather. Come on. Be a part of something. We need the church. We need the church. I heard a pastor once say it like this. A good doctor will keep you out of the hospital. A good lawyer will keep you out of jail. 
And a good church will keep you out of hell. Yep, it's important. It's critical. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives this horrible catalog of sin, everything from drunkenness to fornication. And then he says these words, and such were some of you. Some of you can relate to what Paul had to say, but somebody invited you to church. Someday you woke up and you thought, I need to get to the house of God. Such were some of you, but you came and you got saved and you got baptized in water. You got filled with the Holy Spirit and you're not who you used to be. Because the church isn't a building with a cross on it or a place where there's pews and and there's a pulpit and a praise team. Their church is made up of people who are victorious and are overcomers, where people's lives are being transformed and changed through the power and the presence of God. There's hope here for you. There's hope for your family and for your addiction and your loneliness and your depression. There is hope in the house of God, the unshakable gather, and lastly, the unshakable fast. That's kind of appropriate because it's afternoon. Y'all are hungry. The unshakable fast, Esther 4, 15 and 16 says, Esther sent the reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Do you find it ironic that we started the whole message today with 187 days of an all-you-can-eat buffet? (laughs) And here now, a couple chapters later, Esther is calling a fast. Complete opposite of what the world does. She called a fast because she understood that fasting produces a dimension of power that she could not obtain any other way. See, she realized she had some inabilities and she had some inadequacies and she may have even felt a lack to be able to do what God called her to do. This is big stuff. I'm going before the king and I very well lose my life. If I perish, I perish She may have been beautiful and favored, and she might even have smelled real pretty, but those things do not matter if God does not touch them. And fasting is recognizing your dependence on God, saying, I need you. I can't do what I'm trying to do in my flesh. But when we fast, we have a heightened awareness of who we are in Christ. And so when God calls us to do something and we have fasted, how many, how many days have we fasted as a church this year? I don't even know. It's a lot that we have fasted. But when God asks us to do something, we don't have to go, oh, I don't know if I should do that. I don't really know who I am in Christ. Oh, I don't know. I hope I'm saved. I hope I'm saved. No, we are fasting and we are empowered with the knowledge and our purpose in Jesus Christ. I know that I have been called for such a time as this, and it's not by accident that I am in the position or the place that I am in. She called a fast. And church, the fast is biblical. 
It's in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. And more than anything else, Jesus fasted. So there's that, right? Jesus fasted. There was an early church historian of the first century church by the name of Tertullian. And he followed and watched the apostles. He took notes. He took down dates of things that he witnessed. And it's recorded that he noticed that the disciples fasted often. Jesus' disciples fasted often. And he made the statement that fasting is used by the apostles to fight against what he called the most fierce demons. So you remember the story in the New Testament when the father brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples and they could not cast out the demon. Do you remember the story? And then they took him to Jesus and he took care of business. But the disciples said, hey, Jesus, why couldn't we, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus said in Matthew 17, 21, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. I believe that this kind is the more fierce demons that Tertullian was referring to. You see, Esther, she called a fast because the Jews were dealing with the fiercest demon of all. Do you understand that the enemy was doing everything he could to annihilate the Jewish people? The devil, he's been trying to thwart God's plan from the very beginning. He started out by corrupting mankind before the flood. He targeted and is targeting the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Satan tried to tempt Jesus. He tried to convince him to give up his mission. Peter tried to get Jesus to forego the cross. Do you remember? He tried to kill the church. And before Christ returns, Revelation tells us that the dragon, who is Satan, will attempt to destroy the people and the plan of God. Do you think that he is going to give up now? Do you know that 2020 was deemed the deadliest year in drug history? The deadliest year which made us kind of forget that a couple years prior that over 70,000 people overdosed from opioids. What about the 31% increase in teenage suicide attempts? Teenagers, especially, listen, especially girls, our daughters, our nieces are convinced that life is just not worth living. Know this. Know this. That those fierce demons will not respond to your religiosity. They will not respond to your lack of faith. They will not respond to your once a month church attendance. Or they will not respond to your watered down worship and passionless prayers. These kind, these fierce demons will only respond to prayer and to fasting. Come on, folks. 
We are talking about your soul. We're talking about your marriage. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about your children and your family. It's time to wake up. It's time to get serious. These fierce demons masquerade themselves. Even Christians are being entertained by them. Ouija boards, fortune tellers, palm readers, shamas, chakras, crystals, tarot cards, spirit guides, Wicca, grounding teas, dream catchers. Witchcraft is on the rise. 2018 Newsweek said an estimated 1.5 million practicing witches across the U.S. has more followers than the 1.4 million mainline members of the Presbyterian Church. Gabriella Herstick, a witch, she's an author, told Sabat Magazine, witchcraft is feminism. Hold up. Witchcraft is feminism, and it is inherently political. It's about the outsider, about the woman who does not do what the church or patriarchy wants. And you know what that does to this woman? It makes me mad at hell, and it makes me angry at the enemy because our girls are falling hook, line, and sinker for this big feminist agenda that is inspired from hell. Wake up. You mess with this stuff, ladies, and you will get more than you bargained for. Let me tell you something. Nobody has ever been more for women than Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. If you don't believe me, let's go look at the Leverite law. Let's go look at the Mosaic law. Let's talk about about the woman at the well. Let's talk about the Shumanite widow. Come on. Jesus is for you and not against you. But some of you, you've gone off to college and you think you're smarter than the word of God. And you think you know more than the experience of your godly parents. And you know more than every preacher who has ever come before for you. Here's what you need to know. And it's that Satan is after you. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. And as much as God has a plan and a purpose for your life, the enemy will do everything he can to thwart the plan of God. You ought to start recounting those moments with God. You ought to pull out the word of God and just start comparing what the world is saying and what the word of God is saying. It's time that we wake up to the things of the Lord. You better get your life right with Jesus. Get it right with Jesus. I'm telling you that you're not fooling around with flesh and blood, but there are principalities and there are powers of darkness and their goal for you is death. Don't be naive. Don't be so prideful and arrogant. It'll be your destruction. It'll be your demise. But at LFC, we say all hail King Jesus. 
all hail the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the supreme ruler. He is the one and only way to heaven. He is the savior of the world. And he is empowering us. He is empowering us to be unshakable believers. I close quickly. If you know the story of Esther, you know, you know that Haman was so mad. He wanted to impale Mordecai on a pole in front of his home. But the night before the king couldn't sleep and he had the Chronicles read to him, he was reminded of what had happened, that Mordecai had saved his life. And so before Haman could even get the words out of his mouth that he wanted to destroy Mordecai, the king said, what would you do for a man who saved my life? What would you do to honor someone? He says, I'd get a horse and a robe and I'd have them go around town and let everybody honor this man. And uh, Haman knew. He just knew he was talking about him. <laughs> He's so excited. But sure enough, it was Mordecai. And so there's Haman leading Mordecai on the horse. Everybody was honoring Mordecai. And oh my goodness, Haman was furious. But Esther and the Jews were fasting. There were some reversals taking place because of the supernatural things that were going on. Esther had Haman and the king to a banquet one night, come again the next night. And that second night, the king says, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom is yours. And she said, I want you to know, king, that I'm a Jew and that this man, Haman, is trying to kill me and my people. And the king was outraged, so mad he had to leave the room. And while he was out of the room, Haman fell on Esther, begging her, to have mercy and the king comes in and here Haman is laying on his wife and it made him even madder. And so he in turn was impaled on the same pole that he had set up for Mordecai's death. The story goes that another edict was decreed and the Jews were able to defend themselves. Oh, they won the victory. Mordecai was raised to a high position and the Jews flourished in exile all because Esther was unshakable.